Uh, If you would, grab a Bible, turn it to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. We are going through the book of Daniel, starting last week was our first week. We were in chapter 1. Uh, for uh, those who, uh, who care, I am reading out of the English Standard Version for this series uh, out, of, uh, out of Daniel. The series title um, is talking about adversity as the norm and what it looks like to thrive with adversity as the norm. I mentioned this last week, and I just want to mention it again, is that uh, oftentimes when people talk about uh, the book of Daniel, they talk about it as kind of a template for what it looks like to endure in adverse times, uh, but, but I don't think it's just that. Of course, it's endurance. That's a, that's a very Christian trait of one's uh, salvation by the gospel of Jesus, uh, but it is far more than just enduring. It's thriving as well uh, as we start to piece uh, through this, you'll see where that um, becomes evident. Uh, there are some key ideas we gather from the Daniel text. I shared a few of these last week, but I just want to share a few more uh, today and also repeat some of them that we talked about last week. First is the idea of Babylon. The idea of Babylon is introduced as a literal empire, the Babylonian Empire, uh, but Babylon will be a stand-in from this point forward in the biblical text uh, for really the powers and the, what we consider great within the scope of this world. Um, and so Babylon and the idea of Babylon will always have its tracers linked back Uh, to the book of Daniel. In fact, as we move on in Daniel, we'll notice that we shift empires to the Medo-Persian Empire, and even in the Medo-Persian Empire, uh, they are considered something of a Babylon as well. And so here's the origin point of that. Uh, For those of you who remember the series in Revelation we did uh, last year, you'll remember that we talked about the great Babylon uh, quite a bit as a stand-in or fill-in for the ideas of the powers of the day. And the idea of exile is also thick within this text, uh, that we are living far from our home as we live in Babylon, uh, in this world. In fact, um, it talks about what it looks like to live as an exile uh, at many points throughout the Daniel text. Uh, reminds us there's this constant drumbeat, and we saw this last week really, really highlighted in chapter one, this constant drumbeat of meta-narratives about the world or competing meta-narratives that, that are meant to replace or be a better informed version of the world compared to what our scriptures uh, give us. False worldviews is what we would call that uh, from the position of believers of the gospel. Um, And and basically what this text is reminding us and what other texts have reminded us, especially in the exilic periods uh, for the the people of God in the Old Testament, is that we should expect this. We should expect this. We should expect meta-narratives or worldviews that are constant drumbeats of alternative trying to replace what the gospel tells us is true. Reinterpret and rewrite the story, if you will. Um, also, we learned this last week, is that this idea of our identity and where it comes from, where it is built from, uh, where its origin point is. And one of the first things we see in chapter 1 when these exiles are brought into Babylon is they went through a systemic uh, brainwashing 
uh, where they were tried to, they tried to make them into Babylonians. Um, of course, they resisted, and of course, part of the resistance we noted last week had to do with actually good parenting. Um, we, ha- we can actually uh, tell that they've been parented well and that their identity was built in a firm foundation that was found in their creator, God. And as such, that even living in a society that was completely trying to rewrite their identity down to their education in the Chaldean school of fine magic arts, they were not, they were not going to hold court on that identity. They knew their identity. And this is something that's going to... Um, we're going to see time and again as their identities challenged. Um, and just by the way, absent of a firm identity, of a firm and true identity, there will never be a shortage of identity givers and identity creators to fill in the gaps in our world. Like, like if I don't, if you don't, if we don't give the identity that is true to the next generation, whether they be our children or others, that there will not be a shortage of those who will give them one. In fact, uh, the trope, uh, the movie trope of having, um, finding the guy who will make you a good fake identity, uh, well, we live in a land of expert fake identities, and they're ready to give them to anyone who will receive. Um, Also, the idea of what it looks like to live out an exile character. What does it look like to live in the ways of the Lord in an exile uh, situation. Um, In this sense, we were reminded that while Daniel, like all the Bible, is about Jesus and it's about the gospel message, and we see that, and we're going to see that today, it is, in a way that is not moralistic, in a way that is not moralistic, it is a book that invites you, that entreats you to be like Daniel to be like Shadrach, to be like Meshach, and to be like Abednego. Um, That's not moralistic. Uh, That is actually a trait of Daniel and why many people see Daniel more as wisdom literature than prophecy in many ways. Um, And so you are to cultivate Daniel's character, to pay careful attention to his wisdom and all-around way of life, that he is, in fact, and his friends are, in fact, models for thriving, not just enduring while in exile. Daniel lived out, really, the salt-light ethic that Jesus spoke about in the, salt, in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, if you ever wanted an expansion as to what it looks like to live that salt and, and light ethic, like like. Daniel shows us, especially in these first six chapters, what it would look like. Um, okay, uh, that, that said, just two quick unrelated thoughts before we get into the text. First, uh, just if you did not know this about Daniel, there are prophetic overtones to it, and it is considered something of apocalyptic literature. That doesn't mean it can't be also wisdom literature, but here's a trait of apocalyptic literature. A trait of it is something that we noticed with Revelation when we went through Revelation is that it is a uh, picture book in many ways. We're meant to see and take the pictures in. We're meant to feel the force of Daniel's story over and over and not let uh, the details prevent us from feeling the force of the story and what it implies or means for us and our own stories. Uh, The second one, and I said these were unrelated, and I promise they are. Uh, The second thing that I'm struck by in this text 
Um, didn't mention this last week, but these young men's ages in the first few chapters, uh, they were probably teenagers. They were probably teenagers. Uh, young teenage men um, who were taken, snatched from their parents, uh, put into the court of the king of Babylon. And here we have an amazing narrative, a story of men young in age, but yet, but yet incredibly manly and bold and courageous way beyond their years. Reason I mention that, just as a quick observation, is just to remind ourselves to not expect too little from those who are rising of the next generation. Do not expect too little. Like, like they, they got more in the tank than you think they do. Always. Uh, no matter how positive I have ever been, especially as I was a youth pastor years ago, we are always underestimating what is available in their tank and what we can expect of them. So I just say, Daniel, to those who are on the adult side of life, it's a challenge to you to never back off challenging those of the new generations coming behind you, okay? All right, with that said, and by the way, just it, if you read it with that in mind, it also should be pretty inspiring. Uh, just to see what these young men did in the first few chapters before they started to get their legs under them and actually get some age on them as the book moves on. All right, with that said, let's read Daniel uh, chapter uh, 2, starting in uh, verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. So he's having trouble sleep. These dreams were so pervasive. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. Now, Daniel and his friends were amongst these, but they were apparently not here in this particular summoning. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretations. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But... If you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. Now, real quickly, Nebuchadnezzar is raising the stakes of what they normally provide in their services as the court magicians um, in, in his service. Basically, he is saying, you usually give me interpretation. I don't just want interpretation. I want you to tell me what it is I've been dreaming. What he would usually do is tell them the dream, they would then give it interpretation. He's saying, I'm just going to hold that piece of information to myself. I want you to tell me what I've been dreaming, and then tell me the interpretation. This is pretty smart on his part, and he's also going to weed out whatever is fraudulent, is he not? And so he asks him that, but then he also raises the stakes. He's, he says, and if you're not able to do that, because he's moved... He's moved, he's moved the finish line here. 
I'm also going to have you torn limb for limb. This won't go bad for you in a small way. This is going to go bad for you in a big way. But then he also raised the stakes in that he was going to provide an outrageously amazing reward if you did, in fact, follow uh, in the footsteps of those who could actually tell and interpret a dream. So, stakes are raised. This is a different situation than what is normal for a king and his, uh, and his court. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream. <laughs> okay, so they're like, did we hear you right? <laughs> tell us the dream and we will show its interpretation. Remember, that's what we do. You tell us the dream, we show the t- interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time. You're stalling, in other words. You're trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm, that I'm not going to change my mind. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. So the Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a great thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. So you can see this is setting up something of an impossible scenario that even the purveyors of earthly wisdom recognize, right? It's also an opening for the gospel, though, isn't it? It's an opening for the gospel. It's an opening for the people or a person of God to step up and to do something, which becomes rather important when we read the next portion of the text. Verse 12, Because of this, the king was angry, very furious, and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. (laughs) Not a few of them, all of them whether they were with him or not. And so the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and so they sought out Daniel and his companions to kill them as well. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion. By the way, those are meant to be something of trigger words uh, to the reader, to remind you that this is something to pay attention to. This is where you need to be like Daniel or to aspire to who Daniel is and what it looks like to have the character of an exile. And so Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. And he declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. It's like, give me a shot. He saw the gospel opening, and he took it. He went right through the door. But he didn't go through the door hastily. He asked for a time, and then Daniel went, verse 17, to his house, and he made the matter known to Hananiah. Hananiah, Mishal, and Azariah. If you don't recognize those names, those are the Hebrew names for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Let let his companions know and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. That's the Bible's way of saying, get on your knees and pray. Seek, Seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel 
and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven, and he answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings. He sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked for of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. So take a moment just to soak in what just happened. He told them to pray. We assume they did. He prayed. The matter was revealed to him. Now, it skips over that fact. We later get back to him knowing what it was that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about. But if I could just get ahead of myself a little bit here, what he is going to find out through the revealing that God gave him is that the Lord has effectively been talking to Nebuchadnezzar in a dream. Yeah, sure, he's going to have Daniel interpret and and help him understand what God is saying, but that alone is pretty impressive. He didn't give this dream initially to Daniel or to one of his commands. He gave it to Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Daniel has got to be going, huh, that is interesting. So, just... You know, he reveals himself and tells his gospel through dreams and even through dreams to the wicked and pagan rulers of this world. It's very interesting. Verse 24, Therefore Daniel went in to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon, and he went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me, me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. And so then... Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. <laughs> Arioch really didn't find him, uh, you know, but good job trying to take some credit here. Um, he's actually putting his neck out on the line too, because if, if Daniel doesn't deliver the goods, I mean, he's toast. Verse 26, the king declared to Daniel, whose name was also Belshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men or enchanters or magicians or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God, capital G God in heaven, who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. 
You saw, O king, and behold, a great image, this image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening to you. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great, a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given this kingdom, given the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, making you ruler over all, you are the head of gold. You are the head of gold. And so he's kind of given him his place in the story. And he says, another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over you over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. Now as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel. And he commanded that an offering and an incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Now get what's going on here. What he told him, what he just delivered to him, is not really great news for him. He's saying, basically, your kingdom's coming to an end. Yours is not going to last. But the truth doesn't have to be liked to somehow bring peace to a person. It doesn't have to be liked. I have no doubt Nebuchadnezzar didn't really like this news, but it brought him some sense of peace. Because oftentimes in the world of worldly peace, 
peace is gained when we just simply have knowledge. When we kind of know the thing. Because if we know the thing, and it's no longer a mystery, somehow that brings us a sense of control. And as we're going to see in subsequent chapters, he is going to full-on live out that sense of now feeling like he can actually control this matter. The information has given him what he needs. I've got the peace. I think I can manage this. Now that I know what's ahead, I'm going to manage the bad news from happening. You see where that peace comes from, right? We're that way sometimes too, right? Like sometimes information, if I just knew the why, somehow that gives us a little control and we feel like we can manage the future a little bit better if we know the why behind the, the what. But again, just remind you that this is, a, this is a worldly way of gaining peace. This is not a gospel-granted peace, for sure. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made a request to the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. That last section there just reminds us of why sometimes we see Daniel without the other three and the other three without Daniel. They're just at different places sometimes, and that's just the way it works. You know, this text is a history lesson. Um, and, and I mean that in two cents. One, it, it literally is history, uh, but, but it's also a history lesson for both King Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel of what's to come a future history. Now, what's happening here is both what we would call foretelling, that is telling something that is a mystery regarding the future, but also forthtelling. Forthtelling is just telling what is true and having clarity about what is true. In other words, the aim of the history lesson here is that all history uh, is redemption history. All history is redemption history. The story of the rock in the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, the story of the rock is the story of redemption's history. It's the story of of an eternality of a victory that is going to be had when the rock strikes the remainders of the statue. The Daniel chapter 2 text, like all the Bible, shows that the gospel is the good news narrative that actually drives history. The rock that is not made of human hand is, in fact, telling us the gospel about a great king, Jesus. doesn't use his name. He's not named here. But it is speaking of the future great king that is in the way of King David. It is also talking about the great king that will also be a redeeming king a ruling, a victorious king, a final future king. And so in this, we find out you know, from Daniel's text that this text is going to be about the gospel and this King Jesus. And so this not-so-subtle message is that we, we are to pursue his kingdom. And were we to pursue any other kingdom that is not of God, that is absent of the true king, it will always result in what amounts to a crumbled statue. 
all other kingdoms, all other kings, all other combinations thereof will be a part of what is the crumbled statue. I'm not going to get into the details of this today, but, but really what most believe the statue is representing was near future history, probably uh, the Medo-Persians, uh, the Greeks, and then finally the Romans. Um, whether it means that or not is not, point, is, is not the point, though. That, that's the foretelling. The foretelling is this. This is how earthly kingdoms work. Whether it's those particular four, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, whether it's those or not, foretelling, just telling what is true, this is how it works. In other words, you can just insert really any kingdom throughout all of history of man, and the result is still the same. Same ingredients, same outcome. The rock from whom comes a kingdom that is established, sure, true, never-ending, and victorious, will crumble all earthly kingdoms. And all that have crumbled since the beginning of time were the result of that rock. They rise and they fall based upon the king and his kingdom. Which, by the way, I've mentioned his kingdom. The gospel is also about proclaiming that there is a kingdom that the king rolls over. In fact, fact, just as we see in the dream and its interpretation, he tells them straight up, the gold head, that's you, Nebuchadnezzar, but it wasn't just Nebuchadnezzar. It also represented the Babylonian kingdom. An ancient mind would have connected the two and seen them as interchangeable, not as two separate ideas. And so the idea of the rock that comes, not made of human hands, both represents the king, Jesus, and King Jesus' kingdom. And in case it wasn't obvious, the gospel is also shown to be a message that's both for those that are far from God and those that are considered his people. In other words, the gospel message was meant for Nebuchadnezzar to hear. The gospel message in both the revealing of the dream and its interpretation was meant for Daniel to hear. Daniel is of the people of God, but he was meant to hear the gospel message again. And I hope to show you how both of these work themselves, how these work themselves out in this text with just a few uh, final observations of how the gospel was brought to this situation, this circumstance uh, in time. Uh, The first is that the gospel brought wisdom to this situation. Uh, Remember, the whole idea, the setup was predicated upon not having enough wisdom with the Chaldeans, the magicians, the enchanters. They weren't able to do what the king needed done or what he wanted done. There wasn't enough wisdom in the world. In fact, Daniel makes that point later. There's nothing that anything in this world has to offer you, king. Only what will come from God will bring wisdom to this situation. The text pits gospel wisdom versus worldly wisdom in pretty overt ways. It wants you to walk away understanding that worldly wisdom almost never works out. There can be elements of common grace truth to worldly wisdom. That's true. There absolutely can be. But as a system absent 
of the king and his kingdom, it never works out. It never works out. All the best potential thoughts and theories and self-interested conclusions are shown to be frauds. Ironically, not by Daniel, but by Nebuchadnezzar. The secular man recognizes the secular ideas are frauds. That's fascinating, but it's also condemning for when Christians do not recognize secular ideas as frauds. If Nebuchadnezzar can recognize a fraud from secular thinking, you and I should be wise as serpents, innocent as doves, to recognize that as well, right? They all recognize that the problem or problems um, that existed, they understood that the problem was that the king wants the dream told. Daniel said, yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> He's not telling you the dream. That's the usual. But the others were both impotent and incompetent to address it. I don't know if you, remind, you remember this from the series in Revelation, for those of you who happen to have been here during that, but uh, one, of the, one of the goals of apocalyptic literature is to provide perspective. It's, it's meant to kind of build a perspective into our lives that maybe the fog of war, the cloud of what's going on in this world is not getting us. And this is one of the reasons why we're doing Daniel. We're obviously in a really tumultuous time in history, for us at least. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to try and compare it against other times in history. I'm just saying for us, it's pretty tumultuous, right? Daniel's a great corrective to remind us, to give perspective for us. And that's where this gospel, not only being brought to Nebuchadnezzar, but also to Daniel, is a wonderful reminder reminder that the scriptures are here always to remind us not necessarily always tell us something new oftentimes we know the things the scriptures tell us already sometimes we don't but oftentimes the effect of the scriptures is to remind you to remind you again something that you've forgotten or something that's easily forgotten and in this case that kings and kingdoms they come and go we forget this don't we when we get crazy at election time, friends, and, and we get crazy sometimes, don't we? Don't we? We get crazy. And, and I'm just going to say it right now. Some of y'all are going to get crazy. Doesn't matter how many times I say this. You're going to get crazy. Regardless of where you stand within the political sphere, but this is, this is a corrective for us. It reminds us, kings and kingdoms come and go, but his kingdom is eternal and everlasting. You've got to remember that. That's a perspective. You cannot walk into the world, out these doors, into Monday through Friday without having. Kings and kingdoms come and go. His is everlasting, has no end. That is supposed to be a perspective giver. It's meant to remind us that it is foolish to build any hopes, any thoughts, any kind of expectations on earthly kingdoms. Instead, what did Daniel and his friends do to pursue wisdom, by the way? 
they prayed. They didn't consult livers, as was typical of Babylonian magicians and enchanters. They didn't consult the stars. They didn't read the latest headline in Babylonia today. They didn't listen to what was on whatever their news source. They went to God in prayer. And inasmuch as his word, his scriptures were written on their heart, there's no doubt that they went to the scriptures as well. They may not have had a, a literal Bible, but they went to the scriptures that had been etched on their hearts. And they went to the Lord in prayer. And they kind of, Daniel at least, finished that exercise with praise and worship. When we get crazy, when we need to be reminded that king and kingdoms fall and that there's only one that stands, may we go to the Lord in prayer, may we go to his scriptures for truth, and may we praise his name for the glory it deserves. Let this be rhythmic for us as it was for Daniel. There's something else the gospel brought to the situation, that's peace. I mentioned this before. It did give peace to Nebuchadnezzar, but it wasn't a gospel-filled peace. It was a peace that, that reminded him that, okay, if I know the information, if I know the thing, then now I can actually control the thing or maybe manage the thing. So there was that. He was right. Peace was meant to be brought to him, just not in that way. But it was brought to Daniel, like us, Sometimes a tumultuous situation, we need to be calmed and soothed with the gospel. And the gospel brings peace and soothes our hearts with the statement that God is in control. <laughs> that God is in control. That despite current circumstances, and by the way, the circumstances for these folks, I don't know what you think about your current life and your current culture. The circumstances for these guys are just comically bad compared to ours. Comically bad. I mean, they were ripped from their families. Their temple was completely disheveled of holy artifacts. Places considered important to them, far more important than the Twin Towers of New York, were completely razed and turned to rubble. And then they were taken away. It's like you were taken away to another country, away from everything and all that you love. Their situation was comically bad compared to ours, but they were soothed by the fact that God is in control, even in these bad circumstances. They were not out of their minds anxious. Lord doesn't want you to be out of your mind anxious. That's not what the gospel has for you. The peace of God actually has something better. And there's something else the peace of God brought to this situation. I don't know if you noticed this. But it brought a sense, because when, when you get crazy, you don't, you, don't have, you don't have this instant compassion for other people. There's this kind of like immediate need you have when you're super anxious. 
but it, but it really expanded Daniel's compassion when given the peace of God. The chapter opened up telling us that Nebuchadnezzar was suffering. The language is very plain here, by the way. He was suffering in a very real way. No sleep. These dreams were just hounding him. Now, whatever the motivations behind that, the bottom line is he was a sufferer. In the strictest sense of the word, he was a sufferer. And he had compassion upon the sufferer. Now, sure, he, he received a benefit from doing this. And yes, he was following the ways of the Lord in the way that he went about his business leading up to telling him the dream and the interpretation. But, but make no mistake, Daniel had a choice. He didn't have to be compassionate. He could have, he could have said, well, you're going to kill me? That's fine. But you're going to suffer. I'm just going to go to my grave knowing that and okay with that. People actually will go to those extremes to take joy in other suffering. They will. They will suffer themselves for some. But he had compassion. Peace of God gave it to him. And he also had compassion on the other court officials who are marked for death like himself. He basically, he basically pulled them all out of the grave. Peace of God brought him clarity to the situation and he brought compassion to the table. The last thing we see about the gospel and what it brings to the situation, and this one's really important, it brings action to the situation. The gospel is not just a belief to be believed. It's also a faith to be acted on. It is. In fact, acting, action oftentimes is representative of our faith. We're acting in faith that God is going to do what he does, and so we're walking in the ways expecting him to do what he does. The gospel brought action to the situation. For uh, Nebuchadnezzar, like some of us sometimes, it tempered him. It tempered him. Um, you know, he is, he is a guy who is getting ready to assassinate all of his bri brightest and youngest, but it tempered his exercising of power. To know that there is someone, something in control that he doesn't control. And so in that moment, it tempered him. He, he, he stayed the execution, and he rewarded Daniel. I mean, that was his action. There was some inaction, but nonetheless, this was his choice. He was tempered by God. And you know what it does for those who are already the people of God? Yeah, it sometimes tempers us, but it also emboldens us. It emboldens us in other ways. God's sovereignty should stimulate ways in which we act courageously in our culture. It should. If God is really sovereign, if he's really in control, if he's really the king and the kingdom that's going to actually reign and rule, then you are making the best house bet by acting within the scope of that truth. Always. 
to walk and to act courageously, to think and behave as if God is actually in control. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was coming to an end, and the Lord's kingdom, along with, along with the king, would be the end of all other kingdoms as well. It's merely a long line of those that, that simply resist the kingdom of God. Do you understand that about all kingdoms throughout all of time in this world? They all, in various degrees, some more than others, resist the kingdom of God. All of them do. All kings, all presidents, all prefects, they have all resisted the kingdom of God to one degree or another. But we think and behave as if God is actually in control of all that, that he's not unaware that he wasn't idly sitting by going, ooh, what are we going to do now when the Romans took over? Ooh, what are we going to do now when President Bush was elected? Ooh, what are we going to do now when President Obama was elected? Ooh, what are we going to do now when President Trump was elected? And whoever else is fall, we'll see. Think and behave as if God is actually in control. We don't have to fear. We don't have to fear earthly kings, earthly kingdoms. We can take bold and courageous gospel and forward act actions when they are called for. Effectively leave ungospel like caution. Leave it to the wind. I'm going to conclude there because in coming weeks we're really going to dig down a little bit more on gospel courage, gospel risk. But I want to end with um, a quote from uh, Brian Chappell. He's a, he's a professor and a writer. And it's a good final reminder to us regarding what the gospel brings to us in action. He says this, Holiness is risky business. This is important. And, and you see this in culture today all the time. Society may praise idealism, but it rarely tolerates living out those ideals. Whatever you think of the West, it's every bit as intolerant as this world has ever been. And so to live out ideals will take a bias to risk and the strength that comes from gospel-fed courage in the days ahead. May we act in courageous ways as openings are provided, as the Lord gives us the strength to do so.